Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing religious fictionalism. Philip Goff is a philosopher who teaches at Durham University. He's the author of Galileo's Error and Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, both linked in the show notes. He's published many academic papers, and his writing has appeared in newspapers and magazines, including The Guardian and The Times Literary Supplement. Professor Goff is an academic philosopher of mind, that's his main area, and that's how I became familiar with his work, but in getting to know him online I learned that he has some interesting religious views in his personal life. He's what's called a non-believing Christian. He's an atheist, but he goes to church, and is a member of the Christian tradition. So he's here to explain how that works exactly. We discuss literalism, religious language, the resurrection, the spread of Christianity, whether there's more to religion than intellectual assent to a theory of reality. We also discuss his notion of the transcendent near the end. I wanted to explore religious fictionalism before we got to his views about the transcendent. Non-believing Christians could accept or reject his conception of the transcendent, or any notion of it. We make reference to it throughout, but get more into what he means by the transcendent near the end of the interview. After the interview, I debrief and share my final thoughts on religious fictionalism. I wanted a chance to listen to the interview since I was still somewhat of two minds on fictionalism. So there's about a 20-minute afterward, basically just a normal episode, at the end of the interview. Okay, I really enjoyed speaking with Professor Goff. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Philip Goff. So I'd like to welcome, I think, the first Christian I've had on the show, Philip Goff. Philip, thank you for coming on. Hello, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Looking forward to this. So this is a controversial area. Um, In my experience, nearly everyone who hears about religious fictionalism, whether they're Christian or atheist, has an initial harsh reaction. So everybody just calm down. So um, I'm borrowing this from Robin Poitavin because I like this way of setting up the topic. So here's a tale of two Christians. Both go to the same church, they sing hymns, join in prayers, discuss the sermon afterwards, read the Bible, explore the meaning and implications of its passages. They're both active in the church's community, and they both even met the person they're dating at a religious function. So from our perspective, they're both equally engaged in relating Christian teachings to their lives. Both are inspired by Jesus and try to live like him. They both have a favorite modern Christian writer and so on. Behaviorally, there's nothing to distinguish them. So they're behaviorally identical. And here's where the difference comes in. If you question them and keep asking follow-up questions, you'll find out that they each have a quite different philosophical account of the basis of their identical behavior. One takes religious language at face value, while the other does not. One thinks the metaphysical claims of theism are literally true, and the other thinks they are not literally true. So that's how I explain religious fictionalism. You can tell me if you disagree. 
A fictionalist is one who thinks the metaphysical claims of their religion are literally false, yet they elect to remain a member of that tradition. Yeah, that was really nice. That sounds about right to me. Um, I guess my views become slightly more modest over the years. I think when I first returned to religion about 10 years ago, I would have described myself as a fictionalist. I think I've become slightly more agnostic. And so I, I refer to myself as a, a non-believing Christian now. So as to say, I lack belief rather than definitely disbelieve. Um, and it, But in a way, that's it's not so much because I've changed my mind. I mean, what's what's always been a big thing for me is the problem of evil. You know, I just think that is the most compelling philosophical argument there is probably uh, against the um, traditional all-powerful loving God. So I'm, I'm definitely an atheist about, I'm definitely an atheist about the omni-God, right, for, because of the problem of evil. But more recently, I've, um, I've come across these uh, forms of Christianity where, where God is not all-powerful. Uh, Thomas Ord, or Ood, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, uh, defends such a view, and um, process theists of various kinds. So I think with, with, with these versions of Christianity, I don't have my big reason to think that can't be true, uh, because they, I think that is a way of getting around the problem of evil, just to, to tinker with the traditional definition of God. So for those reasons, I think I've gone from a sort of fi strict fictionalist Christian like Robin LePedvin to um, a, a non-believing Christian. But yeah, certainly I would say I lack belief in, in, in the central tenets. So full disclosure, I'm not a fictionalist, but I think it's a perfectly legitimate way of being in the world. You don't have to, you know, become a secular Christian once you realize, once you recognize that it's a permissible way of being a Christian. I mean, like if Spinoza counts as a theist, then I think you can count as a Christian. And if there can be, um, you know, secular Jews, why can't there be secular Christians? Like, I recognize there are differences between Judaism and Christianity, but I don't think those differences are relevant to the question of whether or not it's legitimate to be a secular Christian. I think, yeah, I think Judaism is a good comparison. I think there are a lot of Jewish people who are atheists, but, you know, value the tradition and uh, the community and so on. And um, so, yeah, I guess I see it in the same way. So, like, you know, I, I, I do have this belief in the transcendent, and I do see the importance of spiritual practice, which, which for me is a matter of practices that sort of deepen one's awareness of, of, of the transcendent, you know, meditation or, you know, various kinds of art or music. So, I mean, I suppose I'm, I'm you know, there are a lot of people you, you meet and say, um, they say, oh, I, I don't believe in God, but I believe in something. I believe in a kind of higher power. That's a common phrase. And philosophers tend to scoff at this. They tend to say, you know, this is just sort of wishy-washy. But I, I guess I sort of fall in that category. And um, But I, I like to think I can rigorously define it and indeed defend it. Uh, but what, what do you do if you're in that category? You know, you could just have your own private spirituality, you know, be spiritual but not religious. But I think there's a value to coming together with a community, you know, practice with a community, um, and also having some kind of structure to your spiritual practice, you know. So, I mean, I guess when I was first thinking about religion, I, I tried Quakers and, and Unitarians who sort of 
totally creedless. I mean, Quakers in Europe, I think, is, is different to the States. It is, you know, more or less pretty creedless. And in fact, you can even be an atheist. But I just found it kind of lacking in content. <laughs> you know, I don't know that the sort of I want the you know, the, the, the rites of passage and the marking of the seasons and the stories and the depth and the tradition and the buildings and the music. And so so I guess about 10 years ago, I I went around Christmas time went to a, a church service in Liverpool Cathedral where I was living at the time. And it was you know, be- beautiful service, that incredible choir, incredible music there. And then I was uh, talking to the the, uh, the dean of the cathedral at coffee afterwards, we stayed for coffee. And um, uh, Pete Wilcox, who's now the, the Bishop of Sheffield, as it happens. Anyway, and, you know, I, I was saying, you know, he was asking me what I thought. And I was saying, you know, I just don't, not sure I take these things literally, but it was a beautiful service. And he said to me an incredible thing. He said, well, I'm a conservative Christian. You know, I believe Jesus bodily rose from the dead and left an empty tomb. But there are many different ways of, of being a Christian. And he gave me books by Karen Armstrong and Marcus Borg brought to my knowledge, my attention, this less literalistic conception of Christianity. And I mean, that just blew me away because I, you know, I was raised Catholic and rejected it when I was 14, didn't refuse to get confirmed, upset my grandmother because <laughs> uh, I didn't believe in God. And, you know, I thought there's, you know, there's the things you've got to believe. And it was just incredible to me, uh, you know, to have that, that, that attitude of flexibility. And I think, you know, the Church of England is a very broad church. So you've got the very evangelical wing. And you've got the the very high the high church, which is sort of more Catholic than Catholic, but and you've got sort of very liberal churches and you know mainstream. So I mean, I guess it's because the you know it was started because the King Henry VIII didn't you know wanted a divorce and the Pope wouldn't let him have one. So maybe there's less the strong ideology behind it. And um, yeah, so so anyway, I hope that gives you some idea of of where I'm coming from. For me, it's about a, a practice in which one relates to the transcendent in terms of the gospel narrative, you know, in terms of this story in which God is identified with a naked, executed peasant, you know, person who hung out with sinners and outcasts and shunned the wealthy and powerful. You know, I think that's a really powerful narrative and a really powerful way of anchoring one's spiritual life. So so that's my conception of Christianity. and. Um, it's not it's not so much important to me whether such and such miracle happened 2000 years ago. Mm. Well, I I share your um your feelings about unitarians and when I was uh, 20 I went to a unitarian church um that was in my it was in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's called Fountain Street Church and it's like a beautiful building and um yeah, I mm. went to a service there and the guy who was giving the sermon was like he was praying at one point but I think he acknowledged that God might not exist like during the prayer. And then he like, he was quoting like different, uh, like world religious texts and he quoted Camus at one point. So if anything was designed to appeal to me, you know, that would be it. Like, you know, the beautiful uh-huh. architecture and the appealing to Camus. And I walked out and I was like, yeah, no, thanks. I'm just like not interested in that. I completely agree with you though, on sort of the appeal of, of the Christian tradition in, um, you have ritual, you have rites of passage, you have community, and you have belonging to a historical tradition that has art and music and architecture. And, you know, yeah. you're not just appreciating the art and traditions, but you, there's a sense of belonging. 
you know, like, oh, I, that's mine. I'm a part of that. Like, you're not just appreciating it as an outsider, like how you might appreciate the architecture of like a foreign civilization or something. Like, you're actually a part of this tradition. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. I mean, you just reminded me, actually, when I tried a Unitarian service, I tried twice a Unitarian service. The first one, they, it was it was the Sunday after Valentine's Day, and the minister made us passed out heart pieces of car, heart-shaped pieces of cardboard, and we had to write a life-affirming message, and they were put in a jar, and then people came up and pulled them out. I remember, so we we came up and we we had to pull them out and read one, and one of them was "What's up, Doc?" I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and then another time I went, and um, this was in a beautiful church actually, but uh, the 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 minister started talking about crystals responding to um, bad energy or something. But I mean, no, it just felt like this is just so wet. You know, I want, you know, I want, I want the, uh, I want the serious stuff. I want, the, <laughs> I yeah, I want the tradition. And um, but, but it's more me. But it's, I guess, it's meaningful to because I, I, there, I do, as I say, believe that. And this, you know, many of your listeners will probably not share my my belief here but you know there is some kind of reality that i can use as the referent for the word god in the, in these contexts so so that you know that that's how it, part oh, of how okay. i can make sense of it oh i didn't quite catch that before that the transcendent you're sort of identifying god with the transcendent yeah i think i don't tend to use the word god outside of a, a religious context but yeah if i'm in a religious service and they're talking about god i mean that's that's how I would understand it, and I, I think of it as a practice in which we're, you know, we're thinking of the transcendent through the gospel narrative, through the kind of character of Christ, and um, yeah. So, so I, I mean, I would defend also the the Robin Lepedevin. I'm, I'm good friends with Robin Lepedevin. He's a really, really nice guy. You know, more radical kind of fictionalism because I think there's a need to there's always need to bring people together. You know, I think. You know, there are powerful forces in our world, consumerism and advertising and global capitalism. And there's, there's very little one person can do on their own. You know, society, so communities aren't what they used to be. And it's, you know, it's good to have something that brings people together. And, you know, maybe you can do that in secular ways. I reviewed a really interesting book by Philip Kitcher called Life After Faith where he defends secular humanism, but he sees the need for the social role that religion has played historically of, of bringing people together and supporting the lonely and the vulnerable. And he calls for secularists to develop institutions that can replicate that. So, you know, I'm, I'm open to that possibility. But, I mean, two things. A, it just doesn't seem to have happened. And B, again, it's... You'd, you'd lack the tradition. So I think there are ways of defending even the more radical Robin Lepedevin fictionalism, but there's even more motivation for me in that I do believe in some kind of transcendent reality, and there is that sort of spiritual dimension to it that, that helps me make sense of it too. Right, right. But someone could have um, the same worldview, basically, as Richard Dawkins and, and still be um, a part of a Christian tradition on this view. I do yeah. want to um, say that you're, you mentioned earlier how a lot of people sort of have this feeling that there's something more to reality. Yeah. And um, yeah, it does sound kind of like wishy-washy and stuff, but you're not in, I mean, you're in good company. Like they're two of the greatest philosophers of religion um, contemporary are Paul Draper and 
Schellenberg, and they both have a view yeah. like that. This conviction that there's something more, but they're not really going to take any leaps about what that is. They're, they're uncomfortable with any of the specific claims about what that transcendent reality might be. They think they're all wrong, basically, like, they're, you, know, they, you know, they're atheists um, or agnostics. Yeah, but, you know, you're in good company there. There are, like, like I just did an episode about Paul Draper's case for naturalism he made in the 90s. And, um, yeah, these are, like, serious uh, atheist and agnostic philosophers of religion, you know, who share your feeling that, you know, there is some kind of transcendent reality, even though the specific religious traditions, you know, you know, their claims about what it's like and, and how to work with it have been, you know, basically misguided and can actually be shown to be probably false. Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to, to both those figures. Um, I mean, I love I love Schellenberg's work on, on the, the problem of hiddenness as well. I mean, I guess that's part of the reason I don't I don't believe in, in the Omni God, because I think if, if there were an all powerful loving God, she would make her existence uh, more known to us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've never fit into, fitted into these dichotomies very well, you know, on consciousness. I've never liked the sort of materialism, dualism dichotomy. And, and on this, I guess I've, ne- I've never sort of felt comfortable with the, you know, the, the either the atheist or, or the traditional theist. Um, um, yeah, I was going to bring that yeah, up, that, that you've sort of found this middle way in yeah. more than one area and managed to piss absolutely everyone off in, uh, in <laughs> that's, that's the problem that's everybody hates you that's the problem <laughs> but um but you know i think there are it's it's not just necessarily vague feelings i think there are rigor i mean yeah i think i think vague feelings could be perhaps defended the, the epistemological credibility perhaps um the philosopher miri al-bahari actually uh has defended or is in the process of defending she's working on a book um you know, taking the experience of, sorry, the testimony of experienced meditators as a kind of expert testimony, and that that's a kind of epistemologically credible thing to do. Um, and on the basis of this, she defends a kind of Hindu mysticism. And uh, it's just wonderful. It's kind of interesting that, you know, I come from analytic philosophy, which is this very cold-blooded, you know, scientific, logical tradition. But then out of it, you've got someone defending kind of Advaita Vedanta, you know, mysticism. But um, but what I want to say is, I mean, I think there are, even setting aside, you know, relying on one's experience, I think the rigorous ways of defending this, I think there are um, necessary truths, I would say truths about value. And even if you don't think there are truths about value, I, I would argue there are, but, you know, truths about maths or logic. And so, you know, and I think it's pretty implausible that we can ground these things in the, you know, observable world of space and time so i think there is um there is a good philosophical case that can be made for some kind of transcendent entity or entities and as i said i you know i i think there is reason to think like plato did that that reality must ultimately be singular rather than plural so that gets you anyway i mean obviously all of this is hugely controversial but i i think i think these things can be rigorously defended it's supposed to be, you know, the, the spirit of the Enlightenment is supposed to be, we look at the arguments and the evidence without prejudice, but human beings are sort of completely incapable of doing that. You know, people get this, people get this, I, I think religion stops people doing that, but also a certain 
conception of what science should be, what the enlightenment is supposed to tell us about reality, gets into people's identity and the sense of themselves, you know, the Daniel Dennett kind of view, and 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 they can't look dispassionately at the evidence. Um, I, I, you know, I feel silly defending these things because I'm I'm very much part of that. Um, I feel kind of silly talking about the transcendent stuff, but I do think these things can be rigorously defended. So I want to clarify your position a little more. Um, so I'm going to quote you. This was the with the Institute of Art and Ideas, their podcast, Philosophy for Our Times. On religious fictionalism, I suppose I don't see that as a question of truth or knowledge. I think there are certain roles that religion played in bringing communities together with shared rites of passage, shared frameworks, especially in a time of individualization in a very commercial culture. It's important to bring people together in the spirit of the good. I describe myself as a non-believing Christian, end quote. So it seems like you're recognizing religious language as cognitively meaningful, so you're not like a theological non-cognitivist, and it doesn't seem like you're saying that religious language is not truth-apt, that it couldn't be true or false. You think this, a religious statement like God exists um, is literally false, at least when it comes to the traditional conception of God that most people believe in. Mm-hmm. And um, just one more clarification, since I know this will come up. You're not redefining truth in order to say that religious language is true. Like, you know, Jordan Peterson, who I bring up as a reference point that people will be familiar with, has a more pragmatic conception of truth where he says that religion is, you know, true in a sense. Like he's sort of, he's like, if you'll, if you'll go with me in this like sort of Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung sort of path, then I can explain to you how something like the resurrection could be true. Um, but you're not doing that as far as I understand. Like, as you no. said in, uh, in that interview, your fictionalism doesn't really have to do with truth and knowledge. I guess another way of putting this is that theism may be false, but religion is bigger than theism. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I, I, I hope I'm saying something different to Jordan Peterson. <laughs> you know, he's very slippery on this question. I think, I think it was on the Unbelievable podcast when the, the host asked him, do you, or the, the person he was debating, say, you know, do you believe Jesus did many miracles? And he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. That's a miracle. And it's, what? <laughs> Answer the bloody question. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I hope I, hope I can say something more. Um, yeah, I'm not redefining truth. I'm, I'm, I'm very much a, a metaphysical realist. There are, you know, facts out there independent of what's useful for us. I'm very much on that side of things. I mean, the way fictionists standardly make sense of religious language. So you might think, you know, why aren't they just lying all the time when they say religious things in in, in a religious context? The way standardly it's made sense of, the way Robin Lepedevin, for example, made sense of it, is to think of it as a sort of implicit operator at the beginning of the sentence. Uh, so an operator is, you know, a bit of language that you put at the beginning of the sentence, like, it is not the case that is an operator. So if I say it's raining, that means one thing. But if I say it is not the case that it was raining, obviously it means the opposite thing. So the standard thing would be to say what you're really saying when you say God exists or Jesus rose from the dead is in the fiction of Christianity or in, you know, in the story of Christianity. So like, you know, suppose we're having a conversation about, you know, where, where did Sherlock Holmes live again? And I say, uh, 22B Baker Street, right? You want to, in, in a sense, you'll say, that's not true. 
because he didn't exist at all. So so he didn't live anywhere. But obviously, what you, plausibly what you mean when you say that is in the fiction of, you know, in the Sherlock Holmes stories, he lived there. And, and so that becomes a true sentence with that operator at the start. So that's, that's, the, if, that's the kind of, for the semantic technicalities, how you'd make sense of it. Although, as I say, for me, with my spiritual beliefs, then it, it's, a, I, I mean, as I say, I think I've got something to serve as the reference for God. Maybe it's not God as naturally conceived, but it's uh, something to serve as that reference. So mm-hmm. I think that allows me to engage with religion in, in a slightly more realist way than Robin Lepedevin. So for me, it's, it's probably a mixture of the two things. It's partly I'm, there's something real I think I'm connecting to or relating to, but I engage with it through this story. And if I make a religious claim in a religious context, I mean in the story. I'd rather say story than fiction. As I say, I've moved from a sort of so there's two ways in which I'm less radical than a fictionalist. One is I do believe in some kind of transcendent entity. The other thing is I, I, I would rather say I'm agnostic about the literal truth of Christianity rather than I'm sure it's false. Mm-hmm. Uh, so are your credences then like uh, like what like fifty fifty with regards to the the literal claims of Christianity? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Fifty fifty sounds quite high. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, I, a lot of my conservative Christian friends, when I, when I ask them, my philosopher Christian friends, when I ask them their credence, they generally say something like 0. 0.6. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah you, you might be surprised by that. Uh, no, I'd say, I'd say less than that. Um, I suppose I'd say I disbelieve in bodily resurrection as well. Mm-hmm. And my reasoning there is, I think there's a real issue, coming back to the problem of hiddenness, I mean, to some extent, I'm agnostic about whether the God is, whether the transcendent is personal. But if the transcendent is personal, then I think she's not all powerful, you know, because of the problem of evil. So, and, you know, I think if there is a personal God, the only plausible explanation of why she doesn't make herself more known is because she's not able, right? But now, if if the transcendent, you know, if you have Jesus coming back from the dead in this supernatural body that can walk through walls, there is an opportunity for God to make her existence an undisputable fact. You know, God could have, you know, Jesus could have zapped all around the world, revealing himself to everybody. Uh, so, 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 so I think you'd, you'd have a problem of hiddenness. Does that make sense? So, yeah, I, yeah. so I don't, I don't think, I, I would say I disbelieve in bodily resurrection but that there are sort of, you know, more spiritual, resu- these objective vision story theories where, you know, Jesus came back in some kind of spiritual form and he was known in visions or something. I would say on those, I lack belief, but I don't have any, I'm always keen to distinguish, you know, whether I think there's a strong reason to disbelieve. So I lose there my strong reason to disbelieve because I think you you can avoid problem of evil and hiddenness. But still, you know, it's a pretty extravagant claim. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure there's evidence there to take that claim seriously. But the, the important thing is that I would say my, you know, my commitment and my engagement with Christianity doesn't depend on the literal truth. I'm more interested in, you know, what the resurrection means to me, what it signifies in my life, in my practice, rather than, you know, who cares whether, you know, some miracle happened 2000 years ago. I, you know, I can't see it makes that much of a difference to one's spiritual life. 
Yeah, and, and I know some like secular Jews who share that sort of feeling about the miracles within their religion. And um, you know, I I listened to some secular Jews in preparation for this because there's you know not very much on secular Christianity. And yeah, I, I guess I I want to come back to that later. But um, the resurrection. Okay, so every Christian I've spoken to about fictionalism brings it up as like the one thing that seems like it's a non-negotiable part of Christianity. Um, like, if there's any candidate for an essential part of Christianity, I guess that would be it. So let's just address it here. I mean, we've been touching on it throughout, but just, you know, what do you believe about the resurrection of Jesus? Yeah, well, so I'd want to divide it into the question of literal truth, which I'm happy to answer, unlike Jordan Peterson, <laughs> and the question of what it what it means to me. Can I, So can I cover both? Yeah, absolutely. Which, which do you want to start with? <laughs> uh, let's start with the literal truth. Yeah. So, well, I've I've kind of said a lot already. I I would say I um I disbelieve bodily resurrection. I lack belief in any kind of uh, spiritual individual resurrection of Jesus. If you're asking me, you know, what actually happened, I mean, uh, firstly, I'd say I have no idea. <laughs> but you know, I I think now here's where we you might start to hate me. I mean, I th- <laughs> I think there's I think there's there's something. In what the apologists say, um, just just in the sense that you know the, the origins of Christianity are a little bit hard to explain, and uh, you know not in the sense of oh there must have been a bodily resurrection. That's the only thing they can explain. But there's something a little bit tricky to explain about um, you know why this messianic cult continued after after the uh, there would be Messiah died. So so here's here's a here's a hypothesis I I sometimes flirt with. You know, and maybe this doesn't make sense, but seeing, it'd be interesting to see what you think of it. So, so I, the 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 disciples, when Jesus is alive, have deep, genuine experiences of the transcendent through their interactions with Jesus, right? When he's alive, and then Jesus dies, and um, you know, tragic. That's a problem. <laughs> and uh, but then slowly, you know, maybe starting with Peter, the twelve. You know, they come to see that they still have those profound experiences of the transcendent that they they had through their interactions with Jesus in in his absence, and perhaps some of them, because you know these experiences were so closely connected with Jesus, you know, come to this triggers some sort of hallucination, uh, you know, that that Jesus is sort of physically there. So, so this is, I mean, this is just speculation that's that you know I, I do think there's something to explain then what i like about this is it, it gives us more of a sense of some something quite profound happened here and we can start to understand why people were motivated to carry this on uh you know even when jesus had died and and also also for you know makes a sense that, that in so, there was something real about these experiences not that there was you know jesus as an individual back from the dead but there was these were profound spiritual experiences that and in that sense they were true experiences and maybe in that kind of in that sense i can sort of defend the veracity of the resurrection in in that there was there was something true about those experiences that were the foundation of christianity so i mean that's just well i'd be interested to know what you think about that but um 
ultimately though i don't really think about this very much in t- well i think about it as a philosopher listening to podcasts such as your own i'm interested in this you know this the debates between apologists and their opponents but in terms of my religious practice it, it you know it doesn't bother me that much wh- mm. whether or not it's literally true mm-hmm. in any sense I think that your view is more widely accepted among atheists than you might realize that like that the that yeah these people did have experiences it's just that they interpreted them a certain way um yeah. that uh you know we wouldn't endorse but no I mean like I don't I don't think they're lying or anything like that when they if I mean it's it's a huge question you know what they actually believed you know like our yeah. our best like scholarship like I I read Bart Ehrman's um blog about this sometimes yeah. and it's like um yeah it's it's totally not clear what the uh early christians actually thought you know like there's there there's not that much of a paper trail um especially in like early early christianity and um but yeah i'm sort of inclined to think that they had experiences that were real experiences they just kind of interpreted them in a way that had all mm. this you know huge metaphysical significance when really you don't need all that metaphysical baggage or all those, you know, metaphysical tools to explain the data, you know, but I, I do think that, you know, a lot of them had experiences. I think like, you know, Mormons had legitimate experiences. There are like, um, you know, stories of like miracles with Joseph Smith and, um, you know, even from people who did not like Joseph Smith, you know, and thought that he was like a fraud, you know, they, they said that like, it must be the devil or something because this was a legitimate miracle, but, um, you know, it couldn't have been from God. It's just like, you know, this is, this is not specific to Christianity. The thing that's specific to Christianity is the success of Christianity. You know, like the, the miracle stories and the sincere believers and the people who are willing to die for their beliefs. Like, there's really nothing, you know, unique about the early Christian church in, in any of those respects. The thing that's unique is that, you know, Christian, you know, like, what is it, like a third of the world is technically Christian in one form or another. Um, I think, have you ever read um, The Triumph of Christianity by Bart Ehrman? I, I, I started it. I don't think I finished it. I think I read a bit of it. I get, yeah. He has a really good explanation, I think, of, it's sort of a mimetic explanation. He, I don't think he puts it in exactly those terms, but mm-hmm. he um, sort of explains why the, you know, mimetic structure of Christianity in that particular environment was highly adaptive and, like, you know, why it succeeded. You know, the Romans in that time were these polytheists where it's like you could just ex- bring on another god to worship. You know, you didn't have to devote, you know, you didn't have to only believe in one god like monotheists, you didn't have to only worship one god like henotheists. Like you could just sort of bring it on and just add it to your list of gods, you know, who you worship. But Christianity was exclusive. It was it, it shares that with Judaism. You know, like where it's like if you're a Jew, you can't worship all these other gods like you have to just worship yahweh but with but christians had this other aspect to their belief system which is that it was evangelical so sort of this combination of yeah. evangelism and exclusivity kind of just caused it to eat through you know the uh the early roman empire because it, it sort of when people brought it on it killed all the competitors you know like it couldn't just be brought on and it sort of absorbed into the religious practice that already existed so um, it was a more high-risk, high-reward strategy. And, uh, you know, there are other factors as well that were, you know, unique to early Christianity that distinguished it, that, um, mm-hmm. you know, could have given it advantages. 
But, um, you know, and the only thing they needed was a, a 4%, I think, 3 or 4% annual growth rate for the, for the time of the, you know, the explosion of Christian belief. Like, when you actually get down to the, the actual growth rate, it's, you know, it's not exactly miraculous to say, yeah, we, we gained 4% this year, you know, and just did that consistently for, for a while. So I don't think that there's, you know, it is interesting, but still, like, the idea that it's an argument that, as apologists try to, you know, invoke it for the truth of Christianity, it's like, yeah, there's, you know, it's like a third of the world is, is Christian, and, like, that's being very generous, because most Christians don't think a world of the, a third of the world is Christian. Yeah. So, you know, if it's like, a, you know, you'd have to accept, you know, Mormons and Eastern Orthodox and Catholics and, like, every form of Protestant you know, to, uh, to say that a third of the world is Christian, which, you know, no one is really willing to do. Yeah, so it's just like the idea that, oh, the, the rise of Christianity was miraculous, the success of Christianity was miraculous. It's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's successful, but like, it's not at all, you know, miraculously successful. Like, it's not so unusual as to, you know, make me think that we need some mm. kind of, I'm not even tempted to invoke a supernatural explanation. You know, when you kind of look at where Christianity Sorry. ended up, yeah, it's just not a very good argument, but it does seem to be something that is appealed to quite often. Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, it's so. The, I mean, the way I think about these things, I mean, I don't have a what's the expression a uh, a dog in this race, <laughs> but I mean, the way I think about this is, you know, it's all about the prior probability, really. You know, in Bayesian terms, it seems like it seems like you're you know you're trying to say there's nothing improbable about the origins of Christianity, and and maybe you're right, maybe you know. Sometimes when I listen to Christian apologists, I'm persuaded, yeah, there was something kind of improbable there. But um, I mean, let's let's make an analogy. Think about the um, the you know the Mary Celeste. Was it the Mary Celeste or the? Do you know this story? The uh, no, where they um, in the ninety was it the nineteenth century? If you found this boat and it was just empty and nothing was moved, like the people had just gone. Uh, you know, n- and nothing was touched. The food was still on the tables. Musical instruments were still out. And it's, you know, it's kind of really, w- it's a mystery, right? How the hell did, there's something improbable there. You know, and now if you, if you, if you have quite a high pro- prior probability for uh, alien abduction, <laughs> then there's good evidence there. There's really good evidence because that would explain, because, you know, if it was an alien, that would explain it, right? But most of us have such low prior probability for that that we say, I think the correct thing to say is, yeah, there's, 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 strictly speaking, there's some evidential support there, but the prior probability is so low that it's, it does, you know, it, it's, it's not enough to get it up. So, so, you know, even if Christian, and maybe you're right, you know, maybe that even if Christian apologists are right, that there's, there's something a little bit tricky to explain about the origins and, or maybe the growth of Christianity. Well, it's that one, one. This one slogan is extraordinary claims requires extraordinary evidence, right? There's in Bayesian terms, you know, it's such an extravagant claim. I mean, the most extravagant thing to me is not is not so much the resurrection, but you know, the the afterlife, and you know, lots of people going to heaven. You know, it's it's such an extravagant claim that you you know you really should have a low prior probability for that. It really would need extraordinary evidence. So yeah, so I'm not I'm not embar- I'm not worried about saying you know maybe there is there is some evidential support because evidential support happens all over the place that, that what, you know, the mainly the, the main thing 
that's relevant in these contexts is, is is the prior probability. But I, but just coming back to, you said what what I think is what a lot of people think. You so right. A, a lot of people would say they had experiences. I suppose the, what what's distinctive about the hypothesis I just outlined is they had experiences which were in some sense true. Uh, just in the sense that they were genuine experiences of the transcendent. And maybe, you know, m- maybe these people had come to really identify Jesus of Nazareth with the transcendent in their minds. And so what is attractive about that? I mean, I think that maybe helps to gives you, it makes it more plausible that they would be willing to sort of vigorously de- defend this stuff uh, if there was some, if there were not just experiences, but in some sense, true experiences. So my point is, you can say that these these experiences are in some sense true without saying Jesus as an individual had come back from the dead. Mm-hmm. That's the thought. But uh, but yeah. I don't know. No, you're you're <laughs> definitely right about um, prior probabilities. Where uh, my friend um, counter apologist, the way that he puts it is, um, you know, what if I told you I woke up in New Jersey, had lunch on the moon, and was back in time. For dinner, it's like, well, you know, you'd think that I was delusional or something. But, you know, if this happened in the Star Trek universe, then that wouldn't be a strange statement at all. And, like, that's sort of a way of illustrating how the different priors can just completely alter what's reasonable to expect or, you know, what what just strikes you as yeah. decent evidence. Like, um, my, uh, I was actually, you know, just home for Thanksgiving and my sister was talking about how, um, you know, there were these miracles at her church. So the uh-huh. miracles were um, that there was a guy whose, you know, wrist, who, he didn't have much mobility of his wrist. So, you know, she was sort of praying over his wrist and the wrist kind of clicked in a weird way. And then, you know, he felt like he had restored mobility of his wrist. And, uh, you know, she was presenting that as if it were just like this amazing, like proof of God. And like, you know, my priors are, are so low that I was just like, well, look, there's nothing that weird about, you know, a wrist clicking yeah. into place, like in, in that sort of highly emotionally charged environment of, um, you know, Bethel Church. And, uh, but, you know, for her, her priors are totally different. Like the background information is different. So the same yeah. sort of evidence, you know, just strikes completely differently. But um, I'm sympathetic to Graham Oppie, though. I, I think that uh, this is how I understand what he's saying, where he says, like, there's not really anything that comes to mind, like any argument you could make that seems like it should persuade um, someone to the other side. So, you know, his approach has just been to point out that, you know, naturalists and supernaturalists can explain all the data, but naturalists can do it with a simpler model. Like, they can explain all the same evidence, but their hypothesis is simpler. Mm. So we should favor the naturalistic hypothesis. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I suppose that w- I would question that when it comes to necessary truths, you know, moral truths and truths about maths and logic. So that, that's where it gets trickier for the naturalistic explanations. But yeah, I mean, I'd probably agree with that. You want the simplest explanation in terms of, you know, the origins of Christianity or, I mean, so here's an interesting, you know, I think it's really important to separate these things out, evidential support and prior probability. So, you know, here's a question, suppose, you know, suppose resurrection was just a kind of totally mundane everyday thing um would the evidence such as it is then support the truth of it i don't know it's it's really hard to separate them in your mind but i don't i don't know the answer to that question so you know it could be it could be that the the christian apologists are right that 
if if there was already a, a you know a fairly reasonable prior probability for the truth of Christianity, then there's then there's good evidence for it. But still, you know, because it's such an extraordinary claim that, that there's such a low prior probability. Anyway, I think it's an interesting exercise to try and um, separate those two things out. Maybe you'd think that there would that even then there wouldn't be a very good argument. But um, uh, should I tell you what the what the resurrection means to me? Or yes, yeah, I was just to about to bring it back to that. Um, so we we, <laughs> we covered the more literal half of the the resurrection. Um, okay, so what does the resurrection yeah. mean to you? Yeah. Um, so. I think it needs to be connected with the crucifixion, right? I mean, that's the sort of climax of, of, of the gospel narrative, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And I think for me, the important thing about the crucifixion is that this is a story in which God is identified not with the powerful Roman Empire, powerful colonial empire, but God is identified with the powerless, humiliated peasant, right? It's that sort of wonderful kind of inversion of worldly values, right? And I think, you know, if thinking about irrelevance in our time, I think the idea would be that God is 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 not on the side of the kind of elites that run our world, not on the side of the tax-dodging multinationals or the corrupt dictators. You know, God is on the side of the immigrants in cages or the uh, victims of human trafficking. So, you know, it's for me, that's the really important kind of political core of, uh, of Christianity. I mean, another, th- another thing that's important about the crucifixion, I think, is another thing it represents to me is the, the seeming inevitability of the bad guys winning. You know, I think for the women looking up at Jesus on the cross, it must have been like, Ah, the Roman Empire wins again. You know, we thought it was going to be different this time, but, you know, nothing ever changes. The Roman Empire always wins. And, you know, I think many of us living today, I think, you know, I I thought in 2008, after the global crisis, uh, you know, things things are going to change now. Everything's going to change. But, you know, I think ordinary people pay the price. Everything goes back to the way it was. Uh, So, you know, that sort of seeming inevitability of of um you know the bad guys winning and then moving to the the resurrection uh what what to me this symbolizes is um you know the hope against all odds that good will prevail in the end you know that the kind of corrupt forces that run our planet won't have the last laugh uh you know and i think that's such a powerful narrative that's inspired the peasant revolt in England of the 14th century and liberation theology in Central America and, um, you know, the, the civil rights movement in the 60s. And, you know, I think it's 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 a narrative that a countercultural narrative I, I don't want to lose touch with, even if it's not literally true. And it's, you know, it's just to add something on that, coming back to rites of passage and marking the seasons, you know, it's wrapped up with the, the with, with the celebration of Easter. So the, you know, the secular world has embraced Christmas, which is fantastic, you know, a wonderful celebration of joy and light in the middle of winter, but they haven't embraced Easter except for having chocolate or something, you know, and I think there's the, the Easter's the two parts. There's a sort of festival of horror. <laughs> you sort of meditate on the, the horrors of the world followed by a festival of spring hope, you know, and, um, and so that's very important for, you know, marking the, the, the turning of the seasons with meditations on suffering and, and a meditation on hope. 
And so, you know, Christian, one thing I like about Christianity is it very, you know, I, I've had a lot, you know, I have a lot of time for Buddhism. I've, you know, I meditate, I used to meditate every day before my second child arrived recently. <laughs> but um, Buddhism, as I, at least in the West, as I've experienced it, you know, his main seems to be almost entirely focused around personal, individual, spiritual progression. Doesn't have much to say about poverty or social injustice or exclusion whereas you know christianity is about you know identifying with the poor the excluded um and that's something that's you know really inspired uh, a lot of a lot of social movements so yeah so that's what that's what the the resurrection means to me and so as you say it's not the literal truth is kind of neither here nor there so I think there's a valid difference between taking religion seriously, like you clearly do, versus literally. And the, part of the reason why I'm not very sympathetic to the critics of fictionalism is that I'm not really prepared to say that there are no serious Christians who don't take Genesis literally, for instance. Like, that's what many, like, Answers in Genesis types uh, believe, that, you know, you take the Bible literally or you're not a serious Christian. So I think the you know critic of fictionalism has some work to do if they want to distinguish themselves from like Ken Ham. I th- yeah, yeah. But I, I also think that um, you know, like you keep coming back to this, like the roles religion played. It's not just about uh, the literal truth of any particular passage of the Bible, whether it's Genesis or whether it's about you know the miracles of Jesus. So I'm interested in that. You know, what do we do once we've come to the conclusion that God doesn't exist? And I think that we have a lot of freedom in that area. Like, I think there's an undeniable element of freedom to atheism. And sometimes Christians will try to psychoanalyze us and say, you know, oh, it's because of that freedom that you became an atheist. And for me, that's not true at all. I mean, it's, it's borderline insulting, honestly, because, you know, I, I took my religious faith really, really seriously and literally. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, I was devoting my entire life to it. Like, my entire life was organized around you know, the church. And then, you know, I, I just became an atheist over, you know, a couple year period. And, you know, at first it was really, you know, like heart wrenching because, you know, I had just lost this like really crucial part of my worldview. And it was a very, you know, psychologically destabilizing experience. So, you know, and then after maybe like a year or so, I started realizing that there were upsides to atheism. You know, it wasn't just like, well, I'm going to believe the truth, even if I don't want it to be to be so. It's like no, there there actually are some you know there are pros and cons to to being a Christian. There are pros and cons to being an atheist, and I think that one of those pros would be that there's this element of freedom to atheism, you know, and that's throughout you know existentialist writers. Um, you know, it's just a very clear consequence of of uh, thinking that God doesn't exist. But the thing that makes me kind of laugh when people are critical of someone like you is like, okay, we're free to do anything except go to church and call yourself a member of a religious tradition. But, you know, if we're radically free, then why not? I mean, you, you don't have to join it. Like, I'm not a fictionalist, but I see it as like a perfectly legitimate way of being in the world. You know, we can just let a thousand flowers bloom here. But yeah, I just don't think there's anything illegitimate about using our freedom in the way that you've used it. And maybe that's not how some of the people listening opt to use it. But, you know, why is it wrong? Like, I think that there there's an invocation of some normative principle here, but I can't figure out what it's supposed to be for the life of me. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, just go, going back to the, 
the first thing you said, there are I mean, so many Christians are fictionless to some degree. You know, right, right. In, in, in the creed, you say that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. You know, I, th- I don't think many people literally think Jesus has a uh, God has a right hand. Um, and as I've said, it's many. It's always been part of mainstream Christianity, a thread in mainstream Christianity to think that the God doesn't literally have personal characteristics. God is beyond human language. I mean, that is the, the Aquinas view is is the official view view of of the Catholic Church. So it you know things are, are, are more subtle than perhaps is often realised. I mean, what if you know what what if you sort of you Christian you believe it all except you don't believe the Virgin Birth? You know, is that is that right? Out useless. <laughs> you know, I think um, yeah, it's um, but yeah, I think that's a that's a the, the, going on to the thing you said about. Why do atheists get so annoyed about this? Jerry Coyne, you know, do you know Jerry Coyne? <laughs> yes, I'm familiar with Jerry Coyne. Well, he, I mean, he, he hates panpsychism. He's written, he's written like eight angry blog posts. Yeah, very, very substantive critiques. <laughs> yeah. of yes, not at all. And uh, and he responded to my religious fictionalism as well, getting getting very annoyed. And yeah, I mean, he said, "What is what is the problem?" Um, it comes into people's identity, doesn't it? And then it's frustrating when the the sides aren't nicely nicely matched up in the way you expect. Although I, I got a, a nice response from Daniel Dennett. Actually, I spent a week on a boat with Daniel Dennett on this um, philosophy conference on a sailing ship in the Arctic, and um, uh, people started asking me if I was a Christian at one point, and I kind of, oh God, was this going to be a difficult <laughs> discussion? But actually, um, they, they were they they were all really enthusiastic about fiction, as mentioned. Daniel Dennett says um, he considers himself the, the dark sheep of the four new atheists, whatever they're called, because um, he's sort of very fond of um, ch- Christmas services and things. And I, I don't know, I, I don't know how to, to what extent, but um, yeah. So yeah, it's, I mean, what, that's a really nice way of putting it. What, what sense does it make? I mean, I suppose my, my um, I suppose I enjoy that all, all the freedom as well. I mean, I, I, I mean, I guess my ethics are, are incredibly secular and, you know, on, abortion and sexuality and sex and um you know I, I in terms of ethics i'm you know i despise william lane craig i'm very much more <laughs> on the richard richard closer to richard dawkins than um than william lane craig and you know i certainly wouldn't get my ethics from religion i i might you know i might be attracted to religion because it perhaps embodies certain values but i i wouldn't you know, get my ethics out of the Bible, and I do. I certainly do disbelieve any of any version of the Abrahamic faiths where the Bible is inerrant. Precisely because there, you know, there is clearly at least some dodgy moral stuff <laughs> in in, uh, in all of those texts. So yeah, so I guess I I also enjoy the uh, the freedom, and maybe people might want to psychoanalyze me for why I, why I'm not an Orthodox Christian. Be- you know, more conservative Christian because of that. But um, I, I'd like to just one more thing. I mean, I, 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 I'm quite passionate about, I hate the dichotomies. I'm quite passionate about letting liberals know that, that this is a way you can do it. I'm not even, you know, I'm not trying to persuade anyone, but let, I, I think liberals just think it all, it doesn't make intellectual sense. And, and I think, you know, that the more liberals 
can make sense of it and get involved if they, you know, if they feel so inclined, that itself changes it, you know, and changes the dynamic. And I don't know if you ever met anyone from the Church of Sweden. This is incredibly liberal. Uh, they have gay marriage, and they. Um, I, I met at a conference some of the Church of Sweden who believed in reincarnation, <laughs> and um, so you know, I think that there's. The more liberals that get a, get involved with it and find a way of making intellectual sense of it, uh, you know. So some, I mean, I I I, I tried to go to an evangelical church, a very evangelical church, about a year, and I just, you know, I couldn't get anything out of it because it was so focused on, you know, you could just feel the li- importance of literal belief, and you know, for, maybe for many people that's just what ex- what religion is. But I just want to. I'm quite passionate about getting across to people that there is another way of doing it you know em- embracing the tradition and the community and maybe some spiritual practice maybe not if if that's not fitting w- with your convictions you know n- w- still won't be for everyone but um there's at least that option to choose from in your radically free uh, smorgasbord of options yeah and i mean i think that like nothing says god is dead like a christian atheist and, you know, I mean, think about, uh, you know, secular Jews, like secular Judaism formed because Jews were becoming atheists in mass, but they didn't want to lose their community or their heritage or their history or traditions or rituals and rites and so on. And Christians can have that too. Well, they do have that too. And, um, you know, even though fictionalism irritates like Christians and atheists, I think we'd basically, I think we'd all be wise to accept it. Like atheists should take it as a victory. You know, any blow against literalism and fundamentalism is good. And, you know, even if you don't think it's like an ending point, it's clearly a step in the right direction. Like, even if you're not sympathetic to fictionalism, you have to acknowledge this as a a good thing. It would be, you know, akin to everybody suddenly dropping young earth creationism. You know, that's a step in the right direction. But I think Christians also should allow fictionalism as a genuine option within their tradition, because God is dead. You know, the church is already hemorrhaging young believers, and, you know, fictionalism could stem the tide to some degree. It could help preserve the things that you like about religion, even if it doesn't preserve the, like, literal theistic aspects. You know, if if fictionalism was a genuine option, it, it might keep people in the religion who would otherwise leave. You know, if not for secular Judaism, there would not be as many Jews, like, by a lot. So... So, yeah, I, I think it, we should sort of create a space where it's like, yeah, this is a genuine option. Like, this is a way of being a Christian. Um, and I think that that would be good for for a lot of people, you know. And again, it's you don't have to join it. Like, it's, you know, I, I'm just defending it as a as a legitimate form of Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, uh, fictionism is one thing. I mean, a less radical option that, yeah, I, I keep saying problem. fictionalism. Sorry, just like out of habit. No, 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 no. That's fine, and and you know, and that more or less captures captures my view as well. But there is something a, a, a less radical that's what's sometimes called non-doxastic conceptions of faith. People like um, Daniel uh, Howard Schneider and uh, William Olson, who think that uh, you know, faith isn't about belief; it's about sort of um, hope commitment or engaging with the possibility or something and so it's not kind of i don't think this is true it's like it might be true i'm going to engage with it i'm gonna and i mean surely that short should be not offensive to someone i mean it's kind of weird when you think about it to define membership by belief 
because I mean, one thing belief is sort of involuntary. I mean, I think a belief is sort of an involuntary response to the evidence, and um, you know, it's 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 weird to think of that as as a virtue, and uh, you know, it's more it's it's better, more natural to think of commitment and engagement as virtues. And you know, so I'm kind of tempted by the the current. I mean, I'm not a historian, so you know, I I haven't. It's not my area of expertise, but. Karen Armstrong's view that this is actually a kind of mod- modern corruption, this focus on specifically belief. So she talks about how the, uh, uh, the, the, the Greek word pistos that we translate as belief, uh, faith or belief, doesn't mean belief in the modern sense. It rather has connotations of commitment, engagement, having your heart in something. And then when the Bible was was translated in sixteenth, um, seventeenth century, I can't remember which now, she says, you know, that that wasn't such a bad translation because the word belief has changed meaning. It used to mean something closer to to prize, to hold dear. She quotes, for example, Shakespeare line from Shakespeare play where the character is told, "Believe not thy disdain." So it sort of means, you know, don't have your heart in your disdain. So the, the, it was closely connected to the German word belieben, uh, to love. And uh, she has some quotes from Chaucer in Middle English as well. Um, so so this wasn't a bad translation. And then, but time goes on, the scientific revolution, the Protestant Reformation, and belief comes to mean a sort of very cold-blooded intellectual assent to a kind of theory of reality. And then now you read the Gospels and you think, oh, Jesus really cared about what theory of reality you have, and <laughs> salvation depends on it. Whereas, you know, that's arguably a misunderstanding. I mean, so actually, Daniel Howard Schneider has an interesting paper, Mark and Faith, which is a um, textual analysis of Mark's gospel, arguing that, you know, what Jesus means when he talks about faith is not uh, belief in the modern sense, but it's more something about resilient commitment. So whenever Jesus praises faith, it's always people who've kind of gone the extra mile. It's sort of demonstrated a kind of resilience. So so that's not to say that, you know, historically everyone was fictionalists, but may you know, I'm sure they did believe these things. But part of the part of the part of the problem actually is is there's no verb for faith in English. So when the Bible when the New Testament says you know, I faith, you faith, he, she, it faith, that gets translated as belief. So it's, I mean, it's, the, the claim is not that that people didn't believe these things, but when they talked about faith, they weren't, strictly speaking, talking about belief. They were talking about something more akin to commitment. And hence, when we think about the creeds, we shouldn't read that as, um, I believe. We should read it as, I commit, I commit to this. So, yeah, so I think, um, you know, that's far less radical than the than the Robin Lepedevin option, probably probably less radical than even my religious engagement. But surely that would be an option. And uh, yeah, William Olson talks about like, um, you know, American youngsters going off to college from their religious communities and these doubts arise and they think, oh no, I don't have this certainty anymore. Why is that? Even if you, even if you don't want people saying, even if you don't want people going around saying the resurrection is a metaphor, you know, if, if people say, I don't know, I'm I'm engaged, I'm working with this possibility, uh, even though I, I don't have certainty or I don't really know with a high credence, what could possibly be offensive about that? But yeah, so in summary, I concur. <laughs> well, um, I'm not really qualified to weigh in on like the theological or um, historical issues that you brought up. But one thing that's perfectly clear is th- the elastic nature of religion, you know, that like religion has evolved and it's changed in so many ways. 
uh, to bring up Bart Ehrman again, he wrote a book called How Jesus Became God and argues, I think convincingly, that the early Christians didn't even consider Jesus to be God. You know, that's uh-huh. quite a radical change. So, I mean, like, if something like that can change, I don't see why, you know, this sort of thing could change. But, you know, another reason I'm sympathetic to fictionalism is that I think the claim that religion boils down to theism is pretty implausible. Like, uh, there's a lot more to yeah. religion than just belief in theism. You know, and this is not like, a, you know, an out there sort of position to take. You know, it's, you know, like you mentioned Dan Dennett. And, you know, Sean Carroll in his debate with William Lane Craig, which is great. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but that was a smackdown. Mm. But um, in his final speech, he, I mean, he could be read as giving a defense of fictionalism, like where he just explicitly says, like, there's way more to religion than just a belief, a, a literal belief in theism. And he was sort of encouraging theists to move on to that conception. He's like, you are going to be left out of, you know, the conversation increasingly if you don't sort of, you know, evolve with the times, which to him is just naturalism. But yeah, I just don't think that it's correct to think of religion just as a series of intellectual errors. Like you're not really, I'm saying like, that's not my opinion. That's just a fact. Like if you conceive of religion in that way, then you just don't understand the whole of religion. Yeah, It's just, it's, it's yeah. a factual issue. But I think that, like you mentioned earlier, um, why does this make people so angry? Part of it is literally just a matter of language. Like these words mean things. And you're saying, well, like, well, maybe it doesn't mean that. And, you know, that is frustrating, you know, to a lot of people. And like, understandably so, you know, it, it's not crazy to have someone come along and, you know, they, they're using words in a different way. You know, they're saying like, well, I'm an atheist, but I'm also a Christian. I can understand why that would be like just annoying, you know, before, you know, before you've like looked more into it. I mean, if you don't mind, I would like to return to the, the, what I think is probably the biggest issue for religious fictionalism is just the problem of religious language. So do you mind if we, if you have anything else to say before we get there? I just on, uh, just what you said there reminded me of a good short book by my former colleague, Tim Crane called the meaning of belief. Yeah. He's not saying, um, religion is about is all metaphor or something like that but he's saying it's you shouldn't think of this as just a theory of reality and so you you think oh do i sign up to that theory of reality yes or no there are other aspects to to religious belief to religious faith like you know spiritual practice community and so on and yeah we i think we need a more nuanced conception of these things but yeah sure let's move on okay well now you, i mean now i'm thinking again about you know what exactly does it mean that there's more to religion than just theism? I mean, what I was thinking of when I said that was, you know, the things that we've been touching on, like, you know, rites of passage, you know, going from youth to adulthood, or just like um, a tradition of art and architecture and music, you know, like being a part of that, I think is a good thing. And just having a religious community to lean on, you know, or to find friends or frankly, to find mates, (laughs) Um, you know, that is a function of these religious communities. Like I met my wife at a religious summer camp. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like there's not really a secular equivalent um, to mm-hmm. to many of these things, and they they seem yeah. to be very helpful and useful. You know, I would say increasingly important because you know we do live in a time where there's increased individualization and atomization, you know, increased precarity, and it just it does feel like you know human connection is just being destroyed by modernity. And if there's anything that can kind of stem that tide and bring people together, then 
it's hard for me to be against that unless there's like an overwhelming reason to uh to reject it yeah absolutely yeah so in preparation for our conversation i reread a chapter of um jl Mackey's book the miracle of theism there's a later chapter called religion without belief and he attacks fictionalism in some forms but i found that he didn't really address your type of fictionalism maybe his attack has more relevance to like peterson's fictionalism where religion is true but um in reading the chapter, I got the impression that his main problem with fictionalists is just what religious language is supposed to mean if you're an atheist. So, you know, we've, like I said, we've been touching on this throughout, but um, it is, I think, people's main issue with religious fictionalism, where they can kind of get on board with, like, yes, religion serves certain roles, and it, you know, it allows you to be a part of something that reaches into the past, and, you know, it, it provides all these social functions. But how can you understand religious language? Like something as basic as, you know, God loves us. Like when you read a passage in the Bible, like what is going through your head? Like you don't think there's going to be a literal judgment day, like it says in some parts of Revelation or other parts of the New Testament. You don't think there's like a disembodied mind who has plans for you, like it says in Jeremiah. You don't think Jesus's biological functions were resumed 72 hours after ceasing function. Yeah, I mean, we already talked enough about the resurrection, but... But um, how do you understand Christian language? Like, um, I guess, what do you draw from the Bible when you're reading passages like those? Yeah, so there's an important distinction between what's called uh, hermeneutic fictionalism or revolutionary or revisionary fictionalism. Uh, There's the article, Philosophy Compass article on religious fictionalism that people might be interested in. um, Philosophy Compass is a sort of journal that has opinionated surveys of the literature. Uh, So the hermeneutic fictionist thinks that that, that this is that this is what religion has always been in the business of. It's never been in the business of making literal claims about a transcendent reality. So that's that's a that's a more unusual claim because uh, it just seems pretty obvious that people are, are making literal claims about an afterlife and a god and so on. Um, so D. Z. Phillips, coming out of a sort of Wittgensteinian tradition, defended that line. Um, but the rev- the revolutionary or the revisionary fictionalist says, yeah, this is something new we're doing, but you know, why not if 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 it if it works? I mean, I, I think there's something more, you know more nuanced. It's not a it's not a totally black and white picture, but distinguishing between these two options because it could be that the word faith has has changed meaning a little bit. It didn't it didn't used to mean belief in 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 the modern sense or also because um, people have forgotten about the the, the apophatic uh, aspect of religion that's always been fairly mainstream. So it's 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 not so obvious to me that everything the the fictionalist is doing is 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 revisionary but clearly th- th- there's some revisionary aspect to that so how do you think about the language why well, does it say you know the um the standard way is to think that when we make these claims what we're talking about is is, is what is true in the story so there's a sort of Im- Im- implicit operator there in the fiction of christianity it is the case that so that's i mean there's two ways to think about this question is this a cold-blooded question as how do we understand what the words mean such that we're not lying all the time the answer to that sort of semantic question would probably be that there's this implicit operator in the fiction of christianity so, so it ends up being like when you talk about Sherlock Holmes and you can say true things like 
Holmes lived at 22B Baker Street, because what you mean by that is in the story of Holmes, dot, dot, dot. Um, 221 I think. Sorry. 221. Yeah, 221 Oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I stand corrected. But then, but then maybe what you're getting at is not this simple semantic question, but, you know, what do you get out of this? What is the, the point of this? Well, again, for me, if I'm thinking of God loves us, I, I probably do have a translation of that, which is something like, um, well, we'd have to get into my... Um, Conception of the transcendent. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, I'm a sort of Platonist, but probably more Platonist than most Platonists. I follow Plato in, in thinking there is a singular transcendent ground of moral truth. So I call that the transcendent. Um, so, so that's a kind of entity in the ballpark of theism, I guess, but not, but not a kind of mind or a kind of, um, personal being. So, um, so I guess most, I listened to your, um, your Metaethics podcast actually, which was, which was good, which is really good. And I guess there you, you're talking to a, a more, um, not traditional, but more of the mainstream variety of, of Platonism or, or non-natural realism, where you've just got many abstract objects or many platonic facts. I'm in, the difference with me, and this is why I'm a little bit closer to Plato himself, I think the ground of these things must be singular, must be a, a single thing. Maybe we could talk about this as a big kind of meta-ethics discussion here. But, but so that's why I guess it's 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 a little bit closer to God that it's a, that it's a single thing, and so religion for me is is sort of about connecting up individuals and communities to that single thing. Uh, yeah, so that, so I mean, you can maybe make a little bit more sense of the motivation that than someone like um, Robin Pedvin, who's maybe got the same kind of uh, metaphysical worldview as Richard Dawkins or something. So yeah, so. Is it supernatural? Um, you know, I think it's um, not in space and time. I think it uh, exists necessarily. So, so you know, it has some of the um, the properties of uh, traditional God, but but not a kind of um, not a kind of mind or not a kind of personal mm-hmm. being. Although, you know, I mean, just uh, this sounds like oh, this is very unusual, but actually. Um, there's always been part of mainstream Christian belief right back to the early church fathers has been um, what's called apophatic theology or, or negative theology that um, that God is is beyond human language, that human predicates can't capture the nature of God. So Gregory of Nyssa and uh, Oregon and something like this view. So, I, I mean, I think we should think of this as this very traditional form of theology as a kind of um, uh, fictionalism about the personal characteristics of God. So these people talked about God as, um, you know, knowing and loving, but they, but if, if God is beyond what you can capture in language, then God can't literally be knowing and loving. And even Aquinas, you know, Aquinas didn't say without qualification that God is knowing and loving and powerful. He said that there's there's something in God that is like knowledge and power. 
So I think, you know, this has got a little bit lost in recent times, perhaps, but that is, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate that. It's, it's so certainly the early church fathers, you know, had a literal belief in, in the resurrection and, you know, that, that, that Christ was uniquely divine in some sense. And I, I would say I, I lack those beliefs. Uh, so there's a kind of innovation there. But, but in terms of God, I, I would say that the view I have is, is, is not necessarily as radical as it might first seem. Mm. So what is the connection between your meta-ethics and your conception of the transcendent that you're outlining? Yeah, so um, my conception of the ground of moral truth, I think of it as sort of the universe, uh, reality being essentially directed towards certain goals, not in, an, not in the sense of efficient causation, in the sense that, you know, the universe is pushing towards goodness or something, but in, in the sense of final causation, if you think about Aristotle's four causes. So the, the meta-ethical theory that's always made most sense to me is Aristotle's. So Aristotle had this idea that animals have teleological essences, so that it's sort of built into their nature that they're in some sense directed towards certain goals in the sense that they flourish when they achieve those goals and they do badly when they fail to achieve those goals. So he thought humans are directed towards rationality such that they flourish when they're rational and they do badly when they're irrational. So I, guess I kind of really make that's a really intelligible story of what grounds value. The problem is, though, organisms are contingent. They might not have existed. Uh, whereas moral truths are necessary, you know, there's no possible world in which, um, you know, it's it's good to torture kids for fun. So, so my my view is a kind of mixture of Plato and Aristotle. I sort of think of reality as a sort of Aristotelian organism that's uh, essentially directed towards certain goals, perhaps pleasure, uh, if a simple hedonist story is true, or other kinds of goals, perhaps. Uh, such that it is it is a good thing when those those goals are achieved, and it's a bad thing when they fail to be achieved. So that was a long-winded digression through metaethics to say how I understand God loves us. I suppose I, I hear that as you know, reality is essentially directed towards the good, not again in the final causation sense, not the efficient causation sense. So so I have a I have an advantage. I, I can engage with religion more deeply, I think, than than your Robin Lepedevin typical fictionalist because i do have some heavy duty transcendent metaphysics going on here uh judgment day what the hell i don't know um <laughs> so with, with, with things like that i suppose yeah so there's there's some things i can translate into metaphysics to do with the transcendent and the the, the directedness of reality towards certain goals and and the word god i take in a religious context to refer to something i believe in namely the transcendent but other things maybe like the resurrection or judgment day it's part of a story it's part of a narrative but it's a narrative that even if it's not literally true expresses deep truths so i think you know when i in christian practice i conceive of the transcendent as a naked executed peasant, you know, as someone who was born into poverty, you know, put in the place where the animals eat in a stable. Even if that's not literally true, I think that that leads me to a deep understanding of um, 
of the of the real nature of the transcendent in some sense of the real directedness of reality towards certain goals marcus borg who was you know taught me this conception of christianity he's um, a, a liberal um, new testament scholar who had um, you know a kind of conception a very non-literal conception of christianity and he said the christian story expresses the the character and passion of god and he must already have meant that slightly metaphorically because he didn't believe in a personal god um but i think the thought is you know reflecting on this uh th- these stories do reveal deep truths about the transcendent even if the surface literal truth isn't there and for you know i, I just I, I don't see why the surface literal truth is is so interesting to one's spiritual life yeah and any more so than like you know literal interpretation of genesis but within secular christianity you know you could be the type of atheist like jordan peterson who is at pains to explain why all these things are actually true in some sense or you could be you know on you could be richard dawkins and still be a fictionalist and say yeah, there is no judgment day. They were just wrong about that. That's what they believed. You know, they were wrong about it. And um, yeah. you could still be a part of, of this tradition. And, you know, if we are trying to find meaning in a godless wor- world and, you know, trying to, to you know, we have the, the same sort of goals that, that you have, you know, why not appropriate religious language and rituals? Like, why start from scratch? You've been very generous with your time, but I'll just say that, you know, many people, Christians and atheists, have decided that you're a heretic and need to be condemned, but I think heresy is a silly concept. I think it was silly (laughs) when Spinoza was excommunicated, as it were, and it would be just as silly to excommunicate you from Christianity. And, you know, I I do think it's in the best interest of atheists, as well as Christians, to allow for a secular branch of Christianity. Like, it should be endorsed as a legitimate option that one can take if they so choose. But, you know, I just think that it's bad faith to fail to recognize the immense freedom that we've been gifted with, or burdened with, depending on your view, that we're condemned to be free, and that means we have the freedom to be secular members of a religious tradition if we choose to do so. So, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Amen to that. Yeah, I I totally agree. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. This has been a really fun conversation. Thanks, Emerson. So I wanted to unpack some of my thoughts about secular Christianity as an alternative and elaborate upon some of the comments I made during the interview. First, there's the issue of what religion is. Fictionalism is only possible because of an underappreciated fact. Theism does not exhaust the whole of religion. Do you think religion is just intellectual assent to a certain theory of reality? Is it that once you've understood the literal metaphysical claims, you've understood religion as a natural phenomenon in its entirety? To me, it seems obvious when you put it that way. No one's denying that the theory of reality is a part of religion. It's just not all of it. And at the end of this little postscript, I want to play Sean Carroll's plea to religious believers to reject theism and move on to a less supernatural conception of religion. Carroll, like Goff, recognizes that there's more to religion than a theory of reality. It's not just a way of explaining cosmology. 
And I think most people recognize that there's more to Christianity than, say, a literal belief in the creation accounts in Genesis. One could reject Ken Ham's interpretation of Genesis and nonetheless be a serious Christian. Why? Because a literalist reading of the Christian story is not necessary. Why shouldn't this extend to other issues as well? What would happen if you radically reinterpreted the Bible? Isn't this already what modern Christians have done? We're all heretics to Christians of centuries past anyway. And yes, most Christians are theists, but that's a sociological fact. It doesn't rule out the legitimacy of fictionalism any more than the sociological fact that the majority of Christians in the U.S. are young earth creationists rules out the legitimacy of theistic evolution. Recently, I've listened to secular Jews talk about their belonging to a religious tradition as atheists and agnostics. There are fundamentalist Jews who are critical of secular Jews. The rabbi I was listening to recounted another rabbi asking him how secular Jew wasn't a contradiction in terms. How can there be religion without a belief in theism? I know Judaism and Christianity are not identical religions, but they're both religions. I don't see how the differences between them are relevant. Judaism is not such an alien species of religion that it's possible for there to be secular Jews, but not secular Christians. As Goff mentioned, the conservative pastor he spoke with said that while he thinks the resurrection literally occurred, there are many ways to be a Christian. The reason secular Jew is not a contradiction in terms, as the fundamentalist rabbi asserted, is that intellectual assent to a theory of reality is not an essential part of religion. I think there's a valid difference between taking religion seriously versus taking it literally. Many Answers in Genesis types, on the other hand, believe that you must take the Bible literally, or you're not a serious Christian. So the critic of religious fictionalism, if they wish to distinguish themselves from Ken Ham, has some work to do. So why am I defending fictionalists if I'm not one of them? Part of it, as you may have gathered, is just a frustration with the unwillingness to grant it as a real path. I've found that objections to fictionalism neglect the fact that literalism is not an essential part of religion, as well as the fact that religion evolves, that century after century, the new generation drifts farther and farther from the original form. I'm conflicted over fictionalism, or non-believing Christianity or secular Christianity. I wanted to give a fair hearing to that side of the story, in part because it seems like no one has yet done so. The few times this issue has come up on other podcasts or YouTube channels or social media, it's harshly repudiated. So I wanted to give a sympathetic interview rather than a combative one that would amount to a debate over who counts as a real Christian. I'm not really interested in that question. It seems obvious to me that there's no objective way to settle that question because religion is infinitely elastic and not really tethered to anything real. I'd rather explore the issue of secular Christianity and just see what happens. But that doesn't mean I'm without reservation on the question. I mentioned a few times during the interview that while I'm not a secular Christian, I think it's a perfectly legitimate category of Christian, and Christians and atheists alike would do well to recognize it as such. But why am I not a fictionalist myself? The short answer is just that I don't care for the way Christianity is practiced, at least as I've been exposed to it. Philip mentioned at one point how he couldn't go to an evangelical church because you can just feel how important it is to take everything literally. It seeps into every sentence. There's practically nothing for a non-believer to take from the religious messages 
and practices that I'm familiar with. Additionally for me, rejoining Christianity would seem to be an endorsement of religion in a way that I'm not comfortable with. I'm apprehensive about the idea of merging with a tradition that's done so much harm and so much bad philosophy right into the present. I've long considered myself not only an atheist, but an anti-theist. Of course, I can't speak to every incarnation of religion the world has ever known. I can only speak to my experience with religion, which has almost entirely been within the world of evangelical Christianity in the United States. I think the world would be better off without literalistic, fundamentalist forms of Christianity. All things considered, I don't see Christianity as a force for good in my country. Since we're talking about anti-theism, I think a slight digression on new atheism is warranted. This is where, in my opinion, the new atheists are misunderstood. Many critiques of new atheism I see are about two things. Complaints about lack theism, the claim that atheism is merely a lack of belief rather than a disbelief in God, and complaints about the fact that new atheists did not substantially contribute to the project of analytic philosophy of religion. The first critique is warranted. The second is just bizarre. New atheism was not an attempt to contribute to the project of analytic philosophy of religion. If you're reading a popular-level book written by a lifelong journalist, subtitled How Religion Poisons Everything, and you're expecting academic analytic philosophy like you'd expect from Paul Draper or Graham Oppie, you are a moron. That's not what a book like God Is Not Great is for. That's not what Hitchens or any of the others were intending to do. I'm not saying they were unreasonable or had nothing of substance to contribute. What I'm saying is that new atheism is best understood as a reaction to the social, political, and cultural aspects of religion. They're just not doing the same thing as an Oppie or a Draper. They're not playing the same game. And I would think that's obvious. Let me give an example. A major issue for new atheists was the question of respect for religious beliefs. Should everyone be obligated to nod along solemnly when a religious person is spouting absolute nonsense? New atheists thought not. That's what many perceived to be new about the new atheism. I'll link a recent interview with friend of the show Ozymandias Ramses II, talking about what new atheism was exactly. Well, in my view, there's no significant difference between the old atheism and the new atheism. The new atheism isn't a new way to think about uh, atheism. It's not a new kind of atheism. It is simply a difference in discursive emphasis. So, uh, I mean, there have been sort of out and proud atheists for a long time. Um, Bertrand Russell was a a famous um, uh, atheist or agnostic by some definitions. And... uh, in an American context, um, you have uh, organizations like uh, American Atheists, which were founded by people like um, Madeline Murray O'Hare. I think she was the founder. Anyway, she was a, one of the early um, spokespeople for the, the movement, and she was sort of very loud and brash and outspoken. Um, but she was sort of unusual in being that outspoken. And most atheist um, activists and people in the uh, uh, online movement later on were not quite so... Um, so loud and, and proud of, about it. They, they talked about um, their atheism without embarrassment. Um, but at the same time, there was a, an understanding that one still had to be sort of uh, respectful of religion, um, uh, of religion itself, not the religious. Everyone, I think, agrees you should be respectful of, of other people, um, whether they're religious or not. Uh, but do you have to respect religion? And that changed uh, with uh, 
a, a book in 2006, um, this book here, The End of Faith by Sam Harris. Uh, and that this is the book that is um, credited with sort of launching the new atheism. And uh, one of the things that's emphasized in that book, In the End of Faith, is that the entire discourse of faith is is something that has been sheltered, that we have, we have culturally put a hedge around um, the discourse of faith, talk of faith, talk of religion, talk of the other world, talk of God. And we have sort of sanctified, no pun intended, um, this kind of talk, um, such that you should not question people about their faith um, too strongly. It, it, it's considered sort of impertinent to challenge a politician on, in, on his or her faith. Um, you should not uh, advertise the fact that you are without a faith if you are without a faith. Um, with the publication of The End of Faith, Sam Harris, and then a number of other books that came online afterwards, um, uh, they were recommending something very different. Uh, uh, they were recommending that people practice um, something called conversational intolerance. Not that you be intolerant of people, but that you um, let people know that you don't buy their religious nonsense as you see it as a non-believer, right? I mean, I mean, if you're a non-believer, if you're someone who just doesn't believe in any religions um, or doesn't believe that any gods exist at all, um, then people's religious talk is going to seem to you to be kind of like talk about astrology. It's going to sound like talk about witchcraft. It's going to seem quaint, metaphysically extravagant, um, and, and or irrational or all of the above. And so the recommendation that Sam Harris makes is that we need to break down this hedge that has been built around the discourse of faith so that, so that people who talk about faith openly are made to confront the incredulity that some of us feel. So the idea is you practice conversational intolerance not by unleashing on someone because they're wearing a cross around their neck in an elevator um, and you don't have to spoil Thanksgiving dinner or anything like that. But what it means is that when the subject of religion comes up, whoever brings it up, you just unabashedly talk about it like you would anybody, any other subject, whether it was science or politics or anything else. You just don't hold back and say, oh, I mustn't, I mustn't uh, tread on someone's uh, religious sensibilities. And so this book was followed by a host of other books. So there was The God Delusion the following year, 2006, by Richard Dawkins. Everyone's heard of that one. Uh, Breaking the Spell the same year, I think later that same year, by Daniel Dennett. Uh, there was another one called God, The Hypothesis That Failed in 2007 by Victor Stenger, who's a physicist. Um, and then uh, uh, lastly, arguably most famously, or most notoriously anyway, uh, God is Not Great. How Religion Poisons Everything by Christopher Hitchens. Um, all of these books had this same thing in common. Um, they were sort of recommending either explicitly or implicitly that atheists come out, um, sort of on the analogy of gay people coming out, of making their existence known. Um, and they don't have to be obnoxious about it, but they should not just give religion a pass. That's, that's the difference between the new atheism and the old atheism. The, the new atheism is simply the idea that religion is no longer going to get a pass. It, there's going to be conversational pressure that's going to be experienced. We're going to confront people with our incredulity about their faith claims. You don't have to say nothing if someone claims that atheists can have no morality. You don't need to censor yourself 
when religious issues come up. You shouldn't allow yourself to be bullied by the religious or force yourself to act as if you have respect for religion if you don't. Again, New Atheism was primarily a reaction against the social, political, and cultural aspects of religion, in particular, fundamentalist religion. So when I say I'm sympathetic to New Atheism, that's what I mean. And this shouldn't be anything new for listeners of this podcast. In the past, I've argued that religion is not only untrue, but harmful. I think it's hard to separate those issues. That Christianity is untrue is one reason why it's harmful. The noble lie is a concept I'm more than a little skeptical of. And just to be clear, to accuse non-believing Christians of perpetuating a noble lie is to misunderstand the noble lie, fictionalism, or both. So I bring up anti-theism, and I want to talk a little more about it, to let you know that I haven't really changed my views here. But I'm sympathetic to the non-believing Christian case, because I think there are good things that can be salvaged from religion that go beyond the literal metaphysical claims. We talked a lot about the roles religion plays, but I think there are obvious negative effects of religious belief. The thing is, a lot of those negative aspects stem from the literal metaphysical beliefs. So fictionalism not only is a secular replacement for religion, that I'm sure could be of use to some people, it simultaneously lands a blow against the kind of fundamentalism that is responsible for the negative effects of religion that made me an anti-theist to begin with. As I said, I'm sympathetic to the new atheist's anti-theistic case. Religion has seemingly been on the wrong side of every moral issue in modern history. Some religious people get the right answer on these moral issues, but many do not, and the ones who do are rarely as numerous as the ones who did not. Civil rights for women, blacks, sexual minorities, were forcefully opposed by the masses of religious people. We all know the exceptions, they make sure to remind us of those, but they were going against the religious grain in their time, and every honest person knows it. When I see the religious disrespect and disdain for atheists, the defense of genital mutilation of boys and girls, even in my own state, violent fundamentalism, tens of millions who still oppose gay rights, or somehow even more irritatingly, pretend that there aren't masses who oppose gay rights, not to mention Christian Zionism, the utter lack of concern for animal rights, the apathy over destruction of the environment, or the excesses of capitalism. I'm not exactly convinced that Christianity is a force for good. So, now that I've alienated everybody, <laughs> look, I'm just explaining my personal reasons for keeping at a distance from Christianity. I know these reasons would not have as much force with someone else, I'm just explaining why I myself am not a fictionalist. If more believers were like Dustin Crummett, or Randall Rouser, or Philip Goff, or some of my Christian friends online, the world would be a much better place. And like Professor Goff said, the nature of religion changes along with those who decide to join it. So I personally am apprehensive about being a non-believing Christian, but that doesn't mean it's an illegitimate option. I think secular Christianity could be a thing, to some extent it already is, and that it even should be a thing. So I'd be lying if I said I didn't see any merits to becoming a secular Christian. I think everyone has some desire to be a part of something bigger than themselves in some form. Everyone needs some structure to their spiritual lives. Everyone needs community to some degree. Religion, historically, has gone a long way towards fulfilling those roles for many human beings. 
I think some people are being deprived of those essentials because they haven't found a secular replacement. Well, guess what? This is a secular replacement. Non-believing Christianity is a secular replacement for religion as we know it today. And it's a far less harmful replacement than other secular replacements. There are communities, for instance, that have manifested on the political right and the left that have organized around some pseudo-morality or crackpot theory of reality that strike me as genuinely worrisome. One reason I wanted to have Professor Goff on is because I've changed my mind about an important question. What replaces religion in the wake of the death of God? Something will take its place. It's not like the belief in Santa Claus. I used to think nothing need replace religion, but I've changed my mind. I used to think it's only hard to live without religion for some people, because we're used to having it. But if the next generation grows up without even knowing it, they won't miss it. However, I now agree with Nietzsche that once God is dead, something much worse could take its place. To quote Mark Fisher, Nietzsche predicted that something much worse than Christianity was already on its way. The flippant answer I think many of us have heard is join a bowling league if you want to replace the community provided by religion. But that's totally unsatisfying. A bowling league is not going to provide you with the community, the rites of passage, rituals, tradition, and structure to your spiritual life that religion does. We're living in a time of atomization and alienation. Many people, especially in my generation, feel like there's no future. There's a longing to be a part of something bigger, and that desire can manifest in ugly ways. Suffice to say the last year or so in politics has not convinced me that bowling leagues can replace religion. So I think we do need a secular replacement for religion, and this is one that actually seems promising to me. I think recognizing fictionalism as a legitimate path is a compromise I'm willing to make. But here's the thing, it's not really a compromise on our part. It's a compromise for Christianity. As I said, this is a secular alternative to religion. This would just be another chapter in the historical trend of literalism and fundamentalism losing its grip in the West. So changing my mind on that question, what replaces religion? That is basically what drove me to have Philip Goff on. Even though secular Christianity is alluring in some ways to me, I don't think I can really pull the trigger. It sounds like my wife might be interested. I just think we do need to take seriously the question of what replaces religion. Some of the self-conscious attempts to replace religion I've been exposed to, you know, Sunday assembly, these other kind of quasi-church groups, it's just not the same. All feels very artificial. Like Philip said, they don't have the tradition, they don't have the roots. That stuff is not going to last. And if we're trying to find meaning in a godless world, why not appropriate religious language and rituals and rites of passage? Why start from scratch? Isn't a secular Christian the ultimate triumph of secularism and naturalism? Nothing says God is dead like a Christian atheist. And as far as secular replacements for religion go, this is a good option. Even if you don't agree with me there, you can at least grant that it's a legitimate option. Again, think about secular Jews. Secular Judaism only formed because Jews were becoming atheists en masse, but they didn't want to lose everything that comes with religion. Religion is not just intellectual assent to a theory of reality. And look, lots of things might change for a fictionalist versus a literalist, and many if not all those changes would be for the better, 
but what can be preserved is structure, ritual, rites of passage from adolescence to adulthood, for marriage, for death. There's contemplation of shared values, belonging to a historical tradition that has art and music and architecture, not just appreciating those things, but feeling a sense of belonging. And we often say community in passing, but that doesn't really capture the diverse and unexpected functions of community. It's not just a nice feeling. It can provide a support structure for new parents, for the elderly. It can connect those within the community over shared interests and shared values. For me, the shared interest was music. I met a lot of friends who also played instruments through religious communities, and at the time, that was the most important aspect of my life. One role a community can fulfill that we briefly mentioned was bringing people together romantically. If on one end of the spectrum, we have Tinder, and on the other, we have meeting people initially in a non-romantic context of a shared community, which end of that spectrum is preferable? Which is more conducive to a fulfilling relationship? Communities facilitate human connection of all sorts. Religious fictionalism irritates both Christians and atheists, but I think we'd all be wise to accept it. Atheists should take it as a victory. Any blow against literalism and fundamentalism is good. And even if you don't think secular Christianity is an ending point, it's clearly a step in the right direction. Christians should allow it as a genuine option, because the church is already hemorrhaging young believers, and fictionalism could stem the tide to some degree. If fictionalism was a genuine option, it might keep people in the religion who would otherwise leave. And who knows, maybe someone is listening to this audio file a hundred years in the future in total confusion at the thought that this would be controversial. It's possible that the divide between literalists and fictionalists will become like the divide today between Christians who take Genesis literally and those who don't. So just to sum up, I think this is a secular alternative to religion that could actually work for some people. And I think there's nothing irrational or immoral about what secular Christians are doing. I think there's an undeniable freedom to being an atheist, and many non-believers throughout history have written about the liberatory component of atheism. If this is how some choose to use that freedom, I'm not going to stop them. So I want to actually just completely go off the topic and talk about issues beyond naturalism and theism, because we're having a discussion here about God and cosmology, but let's pull back the curtain a little bit. There are very few people in the modern world who become religious, who come to believe in God because it provides the best cosmology, or because it provides the best physics, or biology, or psychology, or anything like that. And that includes Dr. Craig. There's a famous quote by him that says that the real reason, the primary reason for believing in Christianity isn't cosmological arguments. And I'm not mentioning this as a criticism. It is simply an observation of fact. There are other reasons to be a theist other than cosmology. And I think that is true. I think that makes sense. Most people who become religious do so for other reasons, because it gives them a sense of community, a sense of connection with the transcendent. It provides meaning or fellowship in their lives. The problem is that the basis of religion in the modern Western world is theism, belief in the existence of God. And I've tried to make the case that science undermines theism pretty devastatingly. 500 years ago, it would have made perfect sense to be a theist. I would have been a theist 500 years ago. By 200 years ago, science had progressed to the point where it was no longer the best theory. By 100 years ago, after Darwin, it was a rout. And by these days with modern cosmology, there's no longer any reason to take that as your fundamental worldview. 
So what do you do if you identify as a member of a religious tradition in this situation? I think there are three options. One is to deny the science, to think that the world is 6,000 years old. Uh, happily, nobody up here on stage today takes that attitude. That was a previous debate from a couple weeks ago. But there's a second attitude, which is to accept the science but deny the implications, to say that none of the progress of modern science has in any way altered the fundamental view of reality that we put together 2,000 years ago. And I think that there's two reasons why that's not a good idea. Number one, I think it's wrong, as I tried to explain throughout the debate. But number two, I think it's a strategic mistake. I think that if one believes in theism, that must be central to one's view of the world for many, many other reasons. And because theism has been undermined by science, it takes theists and it marginalizes them as part of the wider intellectual conversation. Humanity is at a crossroads. It's a very important time in the history of the world. We need to have deep discussions about who we are and where we're going. And people who cling to the belief in God after science has undermined it are increasingly not going to be part of that discussion. Here is a, we talked about cosmologists and physicists. Here's what philosophers believe. There's a recent survey that asked philosophers 30 big questions. And you know, philosophers don't agree on anything. But here are the three questions they had the greatest amount of consensus on. External reality exists. Science tells us something about that external reality. And God does not exist. Now again, philosophers, you get three philosophers in a room. They don't even agree that there are three philosophers in the room. So the fact that there's only 73% is still a very impressive. And this includes professional philosophers of religion. So I claim that there is a third option. And here's the point where I start giving people advice who did not ask me for any advice. So I, I ask your indulgence here. The third option, as I see it, for the person who is religious is to say, look, we admit we were wrong. We were wrong hundreds of years ago when we based our belief system on the idea that God was in charge of it all. Of course we were wrong. It was 2,000 years ago. We didn't have microscopes or telescopes. What right do we have to think that we would have gotten the fundamental nature of reality right? But, this person could hypothetically say, religion is much more than theism. It's not just the belief in God. There is the fellowship we feel for our human beings. For centuries, religious Traditions were the place where human beings did their most careful, sustained, and rigorous contemplation about what it means to be human, about what it means to experience joy or suffering, to feel camaraderie with your fellow man, to be charitable, and so forth, to have meaning and purpose in your lives. So maybe, this person could say, there's something to be learned even for naturalists from the outcome of all that contemplation. Maybe there is wisdom in scriptures, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the art and the music and the lives of the saints, or for that matter, in the Bhagavad Gita, the Tao Te Ching. I don't know whether there is wisdom there. I'm asking for guidance. At the end of the day, we are all human beings trying to figure out our way in this confusing world. The point is that naturalism replaces theism, but it doesn't replace religion. It doesn't necessarily provide answers to the hard questions of meaning and fulfillment and purpose. I think that it can. I find naturalism personally to be an inspirational and profound view of the world. Ironically, the part I find most inspirational is the fact that someday I will die. Everyone in this room will someday be dead, and there will not be an afterlife, a continuance, a judgment. The lives we lead now are not dress rehearsals. They are the only performance we have. Therefore, what matters is what is here, the people we know and love, the lives we can change, the good we can do for the world. That is all there is, so of course, that is what matters. Another way of putting it is, naturalism has addressed the easy questions, the basic physical features of how the world works. But there are hard questions of meaning and purpose and fulfillment yet to be answered. 
The way I like to say is, we have picked the low-hanging fruit off of the tree of knowledge. But there's a lot of succulent goodies up there on the high, higher branches. And we'll get there faster if we all climb together. Thank you. That's all I have for you today. I'd like to thank my Hall of Fame patrons. If you still have an income, make sure your podcasters do too. Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, Pre Nifty, Rory Bimarkowski, and Roth Montiano. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you still want to get really mad at me, you can follow our social media on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Music for this episode was written and performed by Achika Nito and was used with permission. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was also used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>